chapter earlier today, we need to go to the word of the Lord. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that your presence is here. I thank you that you are ministering as we worship you, as our attention, our gaze is upon you. And as we look to you tonight, we can sense in this room, Holy Spirit, you are bringing comfort. You're giving words of knowledge. You are speaking into our current situation. God, I pray that you will continue that work now and that you will minister from your word. God, we, we are a people that honor the word of God over everything that we do in church. We honor your word over music. We honor your word over love and fellowship and kindness and support for one another. It is the word of God that we love. Your word is what we honor. For Jesus, you said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you imagine tonight if we went to a mechanic to get our car worked on because it was having engine trouble? And when we get to the mechanic, the mechanic comes out and he doesn't really look at the vehicle. He just hears what we're saying is the problem. And instead of like looking into the vehicle, he just looks at you and says, there's nothing wrong with your vehicle. And you're looking at him, you didn't even look at the vehicle. What do you mean there's nothing wrong with it? And he says, no, just declare, just speak it over the vehicle. There's nothing wrong with it. You're gonna look at that mechanic and go, I'm never coming back to you again. That's not how this works. If, if I'm gonna go to a mechanic, I want you to diagnose the problem with the car and then fix it. And I wanna get a good price or I'll go to someone else. But you want a mechanic to tell you the truth if you've got a problem with your car. You don't want a mechanic lying to you about the brake pads. You don't want a mechanic lying to you about the acceleration or lying to you about engine fluid because you don't wanna die in that car. You want a mechanic telling you the truth because you need your car to get you where you need to go. Now we want truth speakers when it comes to mechanics. We don't want liars or deceivers. Imagine going to a doctor and you walk in and you've had all these bodily issues and you go into the doctor and the doctor looks at you and he says, you know, with you, I'm not gonna run any blood work. I, I, I think you're healthy, you look great. And you're looking at him going, what are you talking about? I need an x-ray, I need blood work. No, you're fine. You know, just keep saying that over yourself, I'm fine. Repeat after me, I am fine. Uh, doc, that's not how this works. I mean, some of these churches run themselves like that, but that's not how I go to the doctor. I need someone to tell me the truth. And imagine you walk out of that doctor's office and you get the best news ever from him that you're great and you're healthy and there's nothing wrong with you and you call your wife up and you tell her, I'm healthy, there's nothing wrong with me. You go back to your kids, you're like, I'm the healthiest person there is. My doctor gave me a clean bill of health. But your problems get worse. And six months later, you're in the emergency room and they look at you and you're like, they're like, you're dying. And you're like, why am I dying? This could have been caught six months ago. How would you feel about that doctor? You would be so upset with that doctor. Do you know what would happen to a doctor that didn't diagnose their patients correctly? They would be sued. They would end up in a court case for malpractice. They could go to prison for manslaughter charges. They'll never practice medicine again. They would lose their license. 
and they'll never practice medicine again. That's what would happen to a doctor that did not tell you the truth about your physical health. Isn't it amazing how we will go to a mechanic to tell us the truth about our car? We will go to a doctor to tell us the truth about our body. But when it comes to the type of preaching we listen to, we'll listen to any preaching we can that tells us what we want to hear. Well, that, that preacher's my favorite. Why is he your favorite? Well, I just never get convicted when he preaches. I just, I feel so comfortable. I feel so loved. I feel like God just put his arms around me and just made me feel great. Yeah, but did he ever call out these issues in your life? That's what I like about this preacher. He just doesn't do that. He doesn't call out any issues at all. He just makes me feel great about myself. I want you to know if that's the type of preaching that you like, you need to repent. You do. You need to repent before a holy God and realize that if your car is important to you, that you want someone to tell you the truth about your car, if your physical body is important to you and you want a doctor to tell you the truth about your blood work or your x-rays, how dare you not have the same standard for your soul? How dare any of us not have the same standard for our soul. This is why we're in a, a, a generation today where I believe people are hungry for the truth. Even within the church, people are saying, listen, stop telling me what I want to hear and tell me what I need to hear. And so many of our communicators today, they're afraid to tell the truth in case they offend or their big donor walks out while they're preaching or they're afraid that what if I don't have a church if I build it on the truth and Jesus had a ministry because he built it on the truth the truth doesn't always prosper you the way you want it to Judas could testify to all of us tonight that that's the truth Judas didn't want the truth. He wanted silver more than the Spirit of God. He wanted his wants more than God's wants for his life. And Judas was willing to sell out his soul for a few pieces of silver. How the devil comes at us with silver. How the devil comes at us with telling us what we want to hear. Instead of us saying, if I want a truthful mechanic, if I want a truthful doctor, will you give me a truthful pastor? Will you give me truthful leadership? Surround yourself with people that will tell you the truth. If you, if you want friends in your life, pick the friends out that tell you the truth. Pick the ones out that tell you about your zipper being down. Pick the friends out that tell you you got something in between your teeth. Pick the friends out that said your hairdresser cut you bad on the back of your head. Pick the friends out that will tell you how you can be better, how you can be stronger, how you can be a greater believer. That's the type of friends that you want in your life. If you want to be a football player, you don't hang around with golfers. If, if you want to be a wrestler, you don't hang around with badminton players. 
If, if you want to be a UFC fighter, you don't hang around with tennis players. Because you want to put people around you that can make you better at what you want to do in your life. And if you're a Christian, you should want to put people around you that are stronger Christians than you. I mean, if you look around you and you're the only strong Christian in your group, something's wrong. You should have at least one Christian in your group or your, your party, your friendship that is stronger than you. So that they can challenge you and provoke you to truth. So with that said, look at verse 18 of chapter 21. If a stubborn man has a stubborn and rebellious son, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all of Israel shall hear and fear the Lord. Now put a marker there and turn to the book of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And some of the religious were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The religious people right here were looking at Jesus, and Jesus was seeker-friendly with sinners. He was seeker-friendly with sinners. Just sinners were drawn to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are sinners drawn to your life? Or do you repulse them? Let me ask you a question. Do you draw religious people to you or do you draw sinners to you? If you draw only religious people to you, you might need to start studying the life of Jesus a little bit more. Because Jesus actually drew sinners to him and made religious people mad. Some of us have more religious friends than we have sinner friends. Some of us look down on sinner for, oh, so-and-so is out there playing golf with that sinner again. What's he doing playing golf with him for? Why would so-and-so ever be out on those streets with those sinners? Doesn't he realize that bad company corrupts good morals? You should put all those sinners out of your life and not have anything to do with sinners because sinners have more power than the Holy Spirit in your life and can deviate you from Jesus Christ. Well, if that's true... What good is the Holy Spirit? What good is Jesus? Jesus knew who was in him was greater than he that was in this world. Jesus knew sinners didn't tempt him. He didn't want anything they had. He wanted to give them life. He wanted to give them peace. There was nothing a sinner could give to them. The nearer you get to Jesus, the more sinners you'll actually want to be around. 
The nearer you get to Jesus, the more you're going to want to be about the people Jesus was about in his ministry. Sometimes when we read Jesus' teachings, we all just shout amen to everything he says. But you have to understand, some of the teachings Jesus gave were hardcore teachings. And it really was getting under the skin of the religious. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could not see a religious man ever putting his reputation on the line to have dinner with guys like Zacchaeus. Never wanted to put their reputation on the line to spend time with guys that didn't have the same background or zip code or ethnicity or wealth or social status. They couldn't understand why would Jesus lower himself to be with that type of person or people. They're drunkards. They're gluttons. I mean, the religious are thinking through the lens of the law of God, and they're thinking under the law of God, some of these sinners should be stoned. They're adulterers. They're drunkards under the law of God. They're processing everything through the law, and Jesus is hanging out with people that the law says should be condemned. They should be done for. So they're trying to understand Jesus. Why is he doing this? And then Jesus, knowing the grumbling, knowing the anger, knowing the resentment inside of the religious, Jesus tells these three stories. And the first one is kind of funny, actually, because imagine being a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and one of your sheep goes missing and you leave the 99 sheep unfended for wolves to just come in and devour them. And you go searching for the one sheep, and you find that one sheep who had wandered away from the pack. And then you pick that sheep up, and you still leave the 99 up on the hill, and you bring the sheep down into your village where you are from, and you call up all of your friends in the village, and you tell them all, I'm going to hold a sheep-finding party at my house tonight. And I want everyone to come over to my house and we are going to have the best sheep party ever. Holy sheep is going to happen tonight. We're just going to gather together. And we're going to gather together. We're going to thank that I found this sheep. Now, other shepherds in the village would be looking at you going, what are you doing? Get back up there to the 99 sheep. No shepherd leads 99 sheep for one. That doesn't make economical sense. That doesn't make sense. No one celebrates over a lost sheep. If I was a shepherd and I lost a sheep, I would call Johnny and Molly sheep, and in a few months, we'll have 100 sheep. We'll have 100 sheep. Why leave all that to get one? So the religious people, like sometimes we as church people, we just shout, amen, and applaud everything Jesus says. But we have to kind of put ourselves in the religious people's sandals for a moment and go, Jesus, that doesn't really make sense. No one, so the, he is really now upsetting the religious even more. Not only are they grumbling because he was with drunkards and jokers, now he's telling this story about something that doesn't make any business or economical or shepherding sense whatsoever. And then he says in verse 7 of chapter 15, just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So after him telling, he looks at everyone and says, you know what God's measure of success is in evangelism? 
You know what God's measure of success is for your ministry? It's really not about having 99 unrepentant people in your church or in your ministry. It's actually having just one repentant person in your midst that's crying out saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life. Like we might go our whole life as followers of the Lord and we might look down on ourselves and say, I'm not very successful. All I've ever done is mothered my kids and parented them. I've never traveled all over the world and preached. All I've ever done is worked hard to provide for my family and pay our bills and go to church and do the best to have a Bible study with my family as often as I could cram it in because I work so much. And you might not see yourself as successful. Jesus was sharing not only with his disciples but with the religious people that the success that God sees in our lives is not the way we see ourselves. We look at success based on numbers, based on followers, based on wealth, based on material items, based on vehicles, based on all sorts of things we measure our success with. But Jesus' measure of success needs to be learned by the church today because Jesus could care less about what we think corporate America tells us is successful. I want you to know if you believe in Jesus and you've repented of your sins, you are a success in the sight of God. You can say, I am a success tonight. And the world will say, why are you a success? How much do you have in your bank account? What car are you driving? Where do you, where, what zip code do you live in? And you look at them and go, I could care less about any of that. You know what makes me successful? Is I repented and I need Jesus. I'm a success. You're a success. I want you to say that. I am a success. Oh, that makes you feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's like, I don't know if I want to hear that. I, I don't want to hear any of that. You're going to have to hear it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You're going to sit in unbelief. Woe is me. I'm unsuccessful. There's nothing good in my life. Nothing's going to, nothing good's going to come out of my family. I'm just going to sit in insecurity, depression. Or you can say to yourself, you know what? I am a success. Jesus is in my life. Jesus is leading my life. Just because I don't have that car, or just because I don't have that spouse, or just because I don't have that house, or just because I don't make that much money, that's not success. I'm a success in Jesus. Jesus knew he was successful. Everywhere Jesus walked, he's like, I'm successful. I walk on waves. I walk through wind. I walk through walls. I cast demons out. I raise dead people. I give sight to the blind. Jesus was I am. He could do anything he wanted. He knew his authority. He knew and walked in his boldness and his courage. That little sheep that was found by that shepherd Imagine how that sheep felt. Yeah, look at those 99 over there. I got picked all because I got lost. Why don't you all get lost? Just get lost <laughs> and you'll get picked too. The thing is about it is the religious people couldn't see that they were lost. They couldn't see that they were lost. Jesus may as well have looked at all those religious people and said, get lost. 
Because you don't realize you're lost. You think you're righteous in your works. You think you're holy because of your title. You think you're special because of your success. Yet you don't need me. You don't repent. You don't trust in me. You want nothing to do with me. And all you do is criticize me. You're looking on going, I can preach better than him. At least I don't have an accent like him. Everyone can understand me. What type of shirt is that? He should be wearing something a little bit more dressed up. That guy needs to unroll his jeans. What's he doing? I'm airing out my legs. It's hot in here. (laughs) Preaching is like baking a cake. Some are going to say there was too much cream in it. Some are going to say there was too much applesauce in it. Some are going to say there was too much sugar on it. I could care less what you think of my cake. I baked it for you. You want to bake me a cake? Bake me a cake then. I'll enjoy every bit of it. Jesus had to look into the face of critics, waiting for him to make a mistake, sitting there, looking at their Bible, looking at them, looking for an error in them, all while Jesus could see their grumbling, their compromise, their lukewarmness. They were trying to prove themselves with their knowledge, yet they had no life backing up their knowledge. Their words were falling to the ground because they were bitter and angry at sinners. Jesus was about the one. Then Jesus looks at him and says, okay, I'm not done with the crazy stories tonight. He said, I got another one for you. There was this woman, she had a few coins. And she lost one of her coins. She couldn't find the coin anywhere. And Jesus said, this woman got so upset about this one coin, she turned the whole house upside down. Couches upside down. She's going into crevices. She's pulling everything out of cupboards. She is doing everything she can. Imagine tonight you lost your phone. Your phone's gone. Where's my phone at? And you are searching everywhere for your phone. Hours go by and you find your phone. And this is how you respond to finding your phone because this is what Jesus said she did when she found her coin. Imagine getting on your phone and saying, hey, guys, I just want you to put in the group chat for Oxino Church and Teen Challenge. We're all going to come over to my house. We're going to have the biggest cookout ever, and we are going to have filet mignon, prime rib. We're going to have a big old cookout for this. And you're like in the group chat going, I'm so happy. What happened? What are we celebrating? What's the occasion? Well, my phone was lost, and I found it. Imagine the religious people looking at Jesus thinking, What are you talking about? Nobody throws a celebration over a lost coin that was found. Nobody has a cookout because you lost your phone and found it. You know, the religious people are just looking at Jesus and going, why are you prioritizing lost sheep and lost coins? They couldn't see what he was trying to get at. They couldn't see Jesus was teaching them what God sees as success. They couldn't see What God was teaching them was his perspective of what God wants us to be about while we're here. Then, if it it doesn't get any worse, it does get worse. Jesus then goes into another parable. But before we get to it, I want you to look at verse 10. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
So this is round two. Jesus is saying, just as the shepherd celebrated over the lost sheep that was found, just as the woman celebrated over the lost coin that was found, Jesus looks at everyone and says, my God and every angel in heaven, they go to party. They go to celebrate. They go to do cartwheels. They go to rejoice when one sinner repents. You know how we are when we go out and do evangelism? Uh, we just had one person receive Jesus today. What a failed outreach that was. Oh, we put out $10,000. We flew in from all over the world. We had all these people come out, and all we got was 100 people to repent and get baptized. Never do that again. Scrap it. Really? Shame on anyone that views evangelism like that. Get an attitude check. Jesus was about the one. We're about the crowds. Jesus was about the one. We're about decision cards that were filled out. Jesus was about the one, and he was willing to lay his life down, sell everything and had in heaven, lay aside his majesty be crucified just for you and me. Are we going to say, well, Jesus, that was a waste of blood? I mean, there's 7 billion people on this planet, and how many of them are disciples of yours today? Only a handful, it looks like to me. Narrow is the road to heaven. Wide is the road to destruction. Jesus, you probably, that, that was too much blood you spilled for all of mankind, just for what you got out of it. No. He would have spilled his blood. He would have been crucified, even if it was just one of his apostles that made it through to the other side. Because God loves you individually. God loves, he knows your hair on your head. He puts you together in the womb of your mom. He knows you from elementary school to where you're at today. God is closer to you than your mom or your dad or anyone in your life could ever be. And God wants to have that relationship with you and walk with you and he knows you by name. It's not just for God so loved the world. We can be so easy to tell people God loves you and God loves you. I want you to say this right now. Jesus, Jesus. Loves, loves me. Oh, no, we don't like that. No, no, I'm going to say Jesus loves you. The whole me thing, I don't like to hear that. Say it again. Jesus loves me. Until you can come to terms with that, you're a hypocrite if you tell the world that God loves them. How can you tell the world God loves them when you can't even say God loves me? How can you look at strangers on the street and tell them Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, yet when you look in the mirror, I'm the ugliest thing I've ever seen. There's no way God loves me. I can't even believe he loves me. Brothers and sisters, we have got to come to terms tonight. God cares about you individually. This is not just for God so loved the world. This is for God so loves you and you and you and you and you. You've got to come to terms with a personal relationship with him. This is not just a corporate gathering where God just sees the crowd and the numbers. God sees you. His eyes are on you. If his eyes are on the sparrow, Making sure they get fed. How much more is his eyes on you? And you have to come to terms with believing God loves me. 
You got to come to terms with saying, I am successful because I've repented and I need Jesus. You got to come to terms with all of heaven rejoices. All the angels are celebrating because I've repented. I need Jesus. I want to walk in relationship with him. Heaven celebrates that over you. Then Jesus looks at him and says, okay, now I'm going to go deep on you. I'm not done with my story. And I'm going to make this a paraphrase for Wisconsin. I make this relevant to you all today. I want you to imagine a family here in Wisconsin who had a farm, very successful farm. This father had two sons. And one day the son comes to his dad and says, dad, I want my inheritance and I want it before you die so you can watch me spend it all. And dad, it's terrible that we get inheritance after you die. You never get to see me do anything with it. So dad, I think it'd be be a great idea before you die, give me all the inheritance that I deserve right now so I can spend it all and you can watch me live off of your hard work. Now, how many of you would love your dad to give you your inheritance right now? I would. Make life a lot easier if my dad just gave me the inheritance up front right now. Now, many of you are thinking that never happens. But Jesus is looking at everyone as he's teaching and he's saying, it's going to happen right now in my story. So the father says to the son, sure thing, son. I know you're the youngest. I'm going to give you all your inheritance right now. Here you go. Some would say, well, that's irresponsible parenting. What an irresponsible dad. What a hard, what type of dad is that to give their son? He's not ready for that. He can't handle it. How's he going to manage that? Well, you need to tell yourself, you better shut your mouth right now. Because Jesus is telling us a story. So the father gives the youngest all the inheritance. And he's up here in Wisconsin. And he takes all that inheritance. And he goes down to Chicago. He goes to Michigan Avenue. He goes into the strip clubs. He starts buying rounds of drinks. He starts hitting the areas where he can pick up girls. He starts making friends because those friends wanted his money rather than a friendship with him. And he started having all these friends all of a sudden come out of the cracks of life because he had money. When you got money, you really don't know who your friends are. When you got money, most people just use you for your money. You, you, sometimes when you got money, it's like I'm the loneliest person there is. Because all these people around me just want me for my money. And they don't want me for me. Be very careful when you treat people that got money like all they're good for is their money. Because that's what happened with this young guy. He bought himself a Ferrari. He's buzzing around Mission Avenue doing 100 miles an hour. Having cops chase him and he's just swerving through it all. And he's living the best life you could ever have. He found himself a penthouse looking out over Michigan lake and he's thinking to himself I've made it look at all this and the economy crashes in Chicago how many of you think this economy is about to crash any day now oh it's about to crash well for this prodigal son it crashed for him money dried up calls up his friends needs a loan doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills doesn't know what's going to happen all of his Chicago friends block him want nothing to do with him he's got no money now good for nothing That's how friendship with the world is. You miss your old friends in the world? You shouldn't miss them at all because all they wanted you for was what you had. They didn't care about you as a person. They just wanted to take what you had. And when they got it, they leave you alone like you got nothing. Now this young man is the loneliest man in Chicago. Loses his car, loses his penthouse, loses everything he has. And then he says to himself, 
I need to get a job. So he goes on Craigslist. He goes on Facebook Marketplace. He's looking for jobs. He goes to the mall. He's walking the mall. Is there anyone hiring? There's no one hiring. He can't get a job anymore. So he finally finds a job out there in Illinois in a place called Champaign, Illinois. Anyone been to Champaign, Illinois? I got some friends down in Champaign, Illinois. I love those brothers and sisters out there. But that's country. And he found a pig farmer who had a couple of thousand pigs. And this farmer was not only going to pay him some cash, but put him up on the farm and pay his bills for him. thought, this is going to work out great. So he goes over to Champaign, works in this pig farm. But it was a catch. He really didn't have much cash because all his money was going towards his bills and his rent and everything else. It was just a scam, basically. And he was getting so hungry because he couldn't afford food that he was looking at the corn that the pigs were eating and thinking, I wonder if that tastes like, you know, cornflakes maybe, or maybe that tastes like, you know, my mom's corn. So he's eating literally the food that the pigs were eating. And he thinks to himself, this is just, I can't live like this any longer. I can't keep living like this. So he thinks to himself, I need to go back home. It's going to be hard. I'm going to have to face my dad. I'm going to have to tell him the truth. I squandered his inheritance. So he gets on a Greyhound bus. And he's on that Greyhound bus heading back up here to Wisconsin, up here outside of Milwaukee somewhere. And he's on his way up here. Now, Jesus, when he's telling this story, he pauses here in this moment. I want to pause in this moment. You see, in Jewish custom and under the law, when a rebellious son, a stubborn son, a gluttonous son, a disobedient son, a squandering son would end up in a situation like this young man, he was going to be put on display for all of the town to see and he was going to get stoned to death. The wages of sin is death. Under the law of God, if a young man was rebellious and wicked, all Israel would have to know who he was, and that young man would become an example to all of Israel. Don't be a rebellious boy or this will happen to you. The consequence of sin is very serious. The wages of sin is very serious. Like we were saying today, sin will give you STDs. Sin will ruin your liver, your kidneys. Sin will get you criminal charges. Your sin might seem pleasurable, but it'll end you up in prison if you give yourself to it. Sin might give you a momentary high, but sin will ruin your brain cells if you smoke too much of it. Sin has nothing good for you. Sin never produces anything good in our lives. It always produces death. So what happens in the story when Jesus is telling it is that the elders of Israel could have at any moment seen that young man arriving into his hometown and grabbed that boy and had him justifiably stoned to death. But when Jesus is telling this story, he says that the father of this young man was waiting for his son to return home every single day. 
And when the father saw his rebellious son from a long way off, it says in the scripture that the father ran as quickly as he could to put his arms around his son and he puts his cloak off and puts it around his son and he puts a ring on his son's finger and he looks at my, his son and says, you are lost, but you're found. You know why Jesus said the father ran to the son? Because if the father didn't get to the son first and the elders of the town got to that boy first, that boy would have been justifiably judged and put to death. See, every one of us in this room could line ourselves up somewhat with this young man. We've all been rebellious. We've all been disobedient. All of us in this room have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you haven't, you need to know you have. And the Bible teaches you, you're still not good enough, as good as you may think you are. Even on your goodest of good days, you are still not good enough to deserve heaven. The religious couldn't understand that with Jesus. But this young man, as his father is taking him to Fleming's Steakhouse up the street here to buy his son that just returned home a nice prime rib and celebrate over the return of his son, the eldest son finds out about his dad throwing a party for him. And the eldest son is thinking, what is my dad doing? What type of parenting is this? What dad does things like that? Give the guy a belt and you know what you need to do to him. He needs discipline. He needs to be put in his place. Why would you celebrate over him like this? All you're going to do is encourage him to keep doing that. That's not good parenting. And some of us, we just say amen to everything Jesus said. But then when you start hearing it like this, you're like, I can see how the religious people were getting upset with Jesus. This doesn't line up with all my parenting books. Jesus, were you ever a parent? Did you have kids? I don't think Jesus should be giving parenting lessons. Jesus obviously doesn't know how to parent anyone because, I mean, this story here would be bad advice to parents. Really? Do we really think that much of ourselves? Do we think we really know more than Jesus himself? Do you think we got it all figured out? According to Jesus, he's trying to flip the script and tell them all they don't know nothing. They thought they did. Now he's telling them, you know absolutely zero. Your way of success means nothing to God. Your way of value means nothing to God. And your parenting doesn't mean anything to God either because you got to know God. His ways are not your ways, religious person, eldest son. You know, the real prodigal son in this story wasn't the young man that squandered his father's inheritance. The real prodigal son was that elder brother just that was bitter and angry and resentful and was mad and stormed out and stormed up to the dad and said, how dare you treat this young prodigal, this sinful man with this type of favor and this type of grace and this type of celebration? Jesus, the law says he should be stoned to death. The law says he should pay the full price of his sin. And you're having a steak dinner at Fleming's? Doesn't make sense to me. 
And the father looks at the eldest son and says, eldest son, you have had all of the blessing your whole life. You have had access to me your whole life. You could have known me. You could have walked with me. You could have had this as well. I've always loved you. But that elder brother, he was like, I, I can't go with that. And he storms out. And the Bible doesn't say anything about what happens to him. And Jesus looks up at all the religious people because I'm sure it's making them feel very uncomfortable in this moment. All those religious people are feeling very uncomfortable in this moment because Jesus is basically saying to the religious people that are grumbling about his love for sinners that you all are the 99. You all are those coins that think they're found. You all are actually that eldest son. And there is no hope for you because you rely on your Bible knowledge more than Jesus. You rely on your seminary education more than Jesus. You rely on your gifts more than Jesus. You rely on your talents more than Jesus. You rely on your knowledge more than Jesus. You rely on yourself more than Jesus. And Jesus had to say, I didn't come to call the healthy to, to, to be whole. I came to call the sick and the needy, and the broken, and the hurting, and the sinful. Now turn back in your Bible to Deuteronomy 21, and we're going to close here. Deuteronomy 21. In verse 22 of chapter 21, it says this. And this is right after talking about the rebellious son and the consequence of his disobedience to God. In verse 22, it says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his, pad, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the land your God is giving you for an inheritance. The very next passage of scripture that had just called out the sin of a rebellious son, talking about the debt that they deserve, is in alignment with the very heart of Christ coming to be born through a virgin. He came to be born through a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He, at the age of 30, started his ministry. He did the most amazing works. He was the good of the good men that you could have ever met in your life. And because of his good works, the Romans and the religious wanted Jesus to be hanging on a tree. And under the law of God, a man that hangs on a tree is a cursed man. In fact, a man that hangs on a tree has defiled the land around it. Do you understand that Jesus Christ hung on a tree for you and me? Do you understand that we deserve every stone that should be thrown at us for the, from the religious? We, we deserve all of the consequence. We deserve all of the wages. We deserve all of the judgment of God against you and against me. Do you understand Jesus wasn't crucified for good people? He was crucified for bad people. 
Do you understand? You are not good enough for God. That Jesus alone is our only hope of having goodness in our lives. The scripture was pointing away from the consequence of the young man's sin and pointing to Jesus being cursed for us at that tree called Calvary's cross where he bled and he died to replace our sin, to take upon himself our rebellion, our disobedience, all of our wickedness, all of our, all of our gluttony, all of our drunkardness of our lives was taken out on Jesus when he was crucified. This is why we can say, as Galatians chapter 4 verse 7 says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at you as a servant. He doesn't look at you as an employee. You know, that young man said to his dad, Dad, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore, Dad. And the dad's looking at him going, I'm having a party for you at Fleming's. We're eating steak together. You're my son. You've got my, you've got my ring on your finger. No, dad, I don't deserve to be your son. I want you to call me a, a servant of yours. I want to be an employee for you, dad. I want to pay back all of the inheritance that I wasted down in Chicago. I just want to be an employee of yours. And I want with the wages I earn for you, dad, I'll pay you back as a, an employee for you. And that father had to look at his son and say, you are my son. So many people think, well, I'll be an employee for God. You don't want to be an employee for God. You know what the wages will be if you're an employee for him? Oh, I'll be a good worker for God. I'll, I'll clock in. I'll clock out for God. You know what the wages of you being an employee for God is? I'll be a servant for God. I'll just serve and I'll just see myself as this lowly servant and I'll walk in false humility and I'll put myself down all the time because God, I want to pretend that I'm humble so that I can have a closer relationship with you. Stop with your pretending. Your pretending stinks. Your words are like clanging cymbals. God knows the state of your heart. Don't hide it from him. Just be real with God. You know what that young man had to come to terms with? I'm going to believe that I'm a son of my father. And you better come to terms with that tonight. Because if you want wages from God, the only wages we deserve is death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sons... When you lose your dad, some of you have lost your dad in this room. And your dad worked hard his whole life and gave you an inheritance. You don't stand up at the funeral of your dad and go, I just want to thank my dad. He was a good man, but I worked very hard for this inheritance. And so I'm glad he left me this inheritance because I worked every day of my life for it. You can't do that. You know, if your father could tell you something from the grave, you'd say, son, you weren't even around when I worked for that. You were in a diaper when I worked for that. I was chasing you around with a wooden spoon. 
when I was working for that. Nobody has the arrogance at a funeral to say, I earned my dad's inheritance. You didn't earn none of it. He earned it for you. That's why you got an inheritance. He worked so you could have an inheritance. You can't stand before God and say, God, I'm gonna, I put in my hours at the church. I, I put in my hours at the ministry. I evangelized for you. I preached your name. God's going to look at you and say, you were my son before you did any of that. You're not going to get the wages for what you did. You are son. You're a daughter of God. He adopted you through the blood of Jesus to be a child of God. Don't push God away tonight when he's trying to hug you. Don't push God away tonight when he's trying to tell you that he loves you. Don't push God away tonight when he says you're a success. And I have favored you. And you're that sheep that was lost and is found. And you're that coin that was lost and that is found. And you're that prodigal that squandered my inheritance. Yet I still took you back and called you my child. And I got an inheritance for you. I got a blessing for you at the end of your life. You're going to go to heaven. It's not going to be this way forever. It's not going to be the way it is right now in your life forever. This life is passing away. In the twinkle of an eye, we'll be with God forever. Don't make mountains of your problems. It's just grains of sand. From God's perspective. Stand up across this room today. Listen to me. Stretch up 